redemption, accomplishing the impossible. It's about four years ago that Colin Marshall, author of the book Trellis and the Vine, was here with us, and it was a wonderful time, 10 days that he spent with our church, and shared many, many things that uh, the Lord had uh, taught him in his years of ministry. One of the things that he said in his time there that really stood out to me was, um, was this. He said, David, the, uh, the first generation believes the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel. At least that's what it sounded like to me, the way he said it. <laughs> and the third generation loses the gospel. The first believes, the second assumes And the third loses the gospel. I've uh, turned that thought over in my mind many, many times in the subsequent years. And I think the truth of that uh, statement is well illustrated by a trip through my native New England. New England was once a fertile harvest field of Calvinistic congregationalism. There were churches in virtually every single village and hamlet. Beautiful white buildings with steeples and all that, all that you would uh, think of in terms of a New England church. But the landscape in New England is very dark. There is a distinct absence of the gospel witness. Very, very few of those churches or pulpits anymore have gospel light. But they are enveloped, they are enshrouded in darkness. How did that happen? Well, the seeds of that tragedy were actually sown about 350 years ago. 350 years ago, under what is uh, come to be memorialized as the halfway covenant. The halfway covenant. In the, ni- in the 1630s, the, the uh, congregational churches of uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony operated under these rules. You had to have full membership, what they called full membership, in order to participate in the Lord's Supper. They practiced a closed communion. They believed that the Lord's Supper was for God's people and only for God's people. And so you had to be a full member of a local congregational church in order to participate in that that, uh, reminder. And in order to be a full member, three things had to be true of your life. Number one, you had to be baptized. You had to be baptized. Number two, you had to be able to articulate a compelling conversion experience. You had to give a testimony of the grace of God in your life and how he had saved you. And the congregation would judge whether that testimony was compelling. Third, you had to agree to abide by the church covenant, which governed doctrinal beliefs and moral behaviors. On that basis, you would be accepted in as a full member, and the Lord's table would be open to you. 
But there was a problem that began to grow in the colonies. And the problem was this. The children of those church members, those first believers, could not articulate a clear and compelling conversion experience. They had been baptized. Their parents had had them baptized as a child. They were willing to abide by and agree to the church covenant, governing doctrinal beliefs and moral practices. But they couldn't articulate a conversion. And so they were excluded from full membership and participation in the Lord's table. But the problem got worse. And that is that the second generation had children of their own. And because the second generation were not full members in these churches, they were thus unable to have their children baptized and brought into the covenant as they understood it. So you have the grandchildren of the original founding members who can't even be baptized. And if you can't be baptized, then you can't enter into full. There is no hope of you entering into full membership. So in 1662, a synod was uh, um, um, brought about of, of these Calvinistic congregational churches to propose a solution to what they saw as this huge problem of a declining church membership and participation. And the result of the 1662 church synod was that baptism would be extended now to the children of the second generation who were not in full membership. They would open baptism to those children. And the reason they said that they would do that is because they, they hoped that by making baptism available to the third generation, that they would uh, attach these children to the church and incline them towards the Christian religion as they grew later in life. The measure was not universally uh, accepted. It caused a fair amount of controversy in the churches, as you probably could imagine. It was named the halfway covenant. The halfway covenant. It provoked, as I say, a lot of controversy. Eventually, it was a contributing factor to the dismissal in 1749 of Jonathan Edwards, that great New England Puritan preacher, probably one of the greatest lights in American church history. He was fired from his church after 20 years of faithful service because of his opposition to the halfway covenant and all that it had become. As I say, you travel to New England now and you don't have to worry about a declining church attendance. There is no church attendance, at least in believing churches. It's a very dark place. Well, in the text before us this morning, verses 23 through 26 of Matthew 19, Jesus gives us three shocking statements. Three shocking statements about the kingdom of God that we must cling to tenaciously. 
if we're going to live together in Christian community. These are absolutely shocking statements. These are statements that rock your world, that upend your world. They did for the disciples when they heard them. They should for us too. The first shocking statement is this. Those who appear close are truly far away. Those who appear close to the kingdom are truly far away. Now, last week we looked in verse 16 through 22 at the account of the rich young ruler, right? I, I think this, uh, this account of the rich young ruler has got to be one of the saddest stories in the Bible. It is such a heartbreak to read this account. This young man appeared to have so much spiritual potential. He was moral. He was religious. He was generous as measured by the Judaism of his day. And by the way, a generosity that would put many evangelicals to shame. He was generous. He was spiritually minded, and he possessed a a really tender conscience. If there ever was a seeker, this was one. This was a high potential guy. This was an evangelistic contact that you would love to have. You didn't go find him. He came and found you and wanted to know how to obtain eternal life. And Jesus loved him, the text tells us. Jesus loved him. And in love, Jesus spoke to him and pointed out to him the path of life. And that man's face fell, Mark tells us. Mark 10. The man's face fell. Matthew says he walked away grieved. He turned his back on eternal life and walked away. That's why I say it's got to be one of the saddest stories. Why did that young man turn away? Why? The answer is that deep down inside, the property that he owned, in fact, owned him. That which he owned, owned him. He could not part with the temporal kingdom that he had constructed for himself. And as that man walked away, Jesus turned and looked, Mark tells us, at his disciples. And the picture there is that that he turned and that he looked eyeball to eyeball with his disciples. 
And he said to them in the most serious of tones. Truly, verse 23, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is hard. Mark tells us that upon hearing these words, his disciples were amazed. They were amazed at what he said. And Jesus answered them again. Not that they had ever spoken anything. It was just in their eyes. He could, he could see the question forming. And so he answered them again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is. Why were they amazed by these statements, do you think? Why did these statements by Jesus rock their world? The answer is, it's because they were a product of their upbringing, their culture, their religious understandings, their worldview, if you like. They had been raised with an understanding that material blessings was evidence of God's favor upon an individual. That that person stood in a place of favor with God and, and God prospered them. Accordingly. In other words, a person's wealth testifies to the blessing of God in their lives. This man was wealthy. This man was moral. This man was religious. This man was generous. This man was spiritually minded. This man had a tender conscience. This man was the ideal candidate the kingdom of God. Ideal candidate. And Jesus says to him, divest yourself of all of your possessions and come follow me. Get rid of everything and follow me. That's shocking. Shocking. What Jesus is saying, in fact, is that far from being an unmixed blessing, wealth is actually a very, very grave danger. A very grave danger. A hindrance to entrance into the kingdom of God. That's kind of shocking, don't you think? While these words are sinking into their confused brains, and Jesus doesn't let it go. He comes back at him again, and, and he takes his instruction one step further by the use of an illustration. Verse 24. An illustration. It's an illustration drawn from the common things of life, like most of his illustrations. 
He chooses the very largest animal that is commonly known to the people of that day and in that part, and the very smallest opening that would be common to them. And he says, again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there is a persistent notion that kind of circulates around this text that what Jesus was referring to was a very small opening in the gates of the city of Jerusalem called the Camel's Gate. And so the story goes that this small opening could be, would be opened when the city didn't feel like opening its main gates and, and people could pass in and out through the camel's gate. And that a camel, if it, if it shed all of its, you know, its luggage, as it were, and it were to get on its hands and knees, it could crawl through the camel's gate. And thus what Jesus is illustrating here is that, is that the only way into the kingdom is to get down on your hands and knees and humble yourself and squeeze your way in. Balderdash, nonsense, foolishness, wrong, wrong. There is no historical evidence of a camel's gate. And by the way, this, uh, this has been persisting since the Middle Ages. This is an old mistake. There are no evidences, nothing historically of a camel's gate. Beyond that... The reaction of the disciples when they hear this lets one know that Jesus is not speaking about the fact that it's really hard to get into the kingdom, but if you crawl, you'll make it. What he's saying is, you're not going to get in at all. That's the point of the illustration. And beloved, it is impossible for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. It is impossible. They are jolted to reality. They are unnerved by these statements. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished. The English doesn't do justice. They were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? Then who can be saved? If this young man, who is the ideal profile of one blessed of God, who is desiring the kingdom of God, if he cannot be saved, then who can? Who can? Said another way, if, if those who appear to be close to the kingdom are actually far away, then how will anybody make it in? How will anybody? That is shocking. 
That is absolutely shocking. Those who appear close are truly far away. Far away. Jesus follows it up in verse 26 with the next shocking statement. Nobody can gain access. Nobody can gain access to the kingdom. Verse 26. And looking at them, and you get the picture. He says to them, with people, this is impossible. It is impossible. Those who appear most likely are really, really far away. And that means that everyone is really, really, really far away. In fact, it is impossible to gain access to my kingdom. You cannot get in. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can say. There is nothing you can give. The gates are closed. The walls are too high. There's no way in. None. Why is it hard? Yea, impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom? Why? We know from the Gospels that some rich men made it into the kingdom. Become citizens of the kingdom, right? We know about Zacchaeus. You know, the wee little man. Go to Luke 19 and verse 9. He is a a child of Abraham, Jesus says. A very wealthy man. We know about Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 57 says he was a very wealthy man. They both become citizens of the kingdom. Without having to have divested themselves of their entire worldly holdings. So Jesus has got to be getting at something deeper here than simply bank balances. There's something more to this. Than simply stating if your bank balance is X, you're out. This rich young ruler, this rich young man, he is unwilling to lay aside the life that he has built for himself in order to lay hold of the life to come. Despite his many, many commendable qualities, deep down inside he is more committed to this life than the next. And that's the problem. That's the problem. 
And Jesus says this is, by the way, a, a greater temptation to those who possess large amounts of material wealth. It's hard. What we have so often has us. I'd like to suggest to you that this truth about wealth is not simply related to bank balances. By the way, you know, ask who is rich. Rich is the person next to you, right? Never you. But I like to take it out of the realm of money because I think the truth moves across many, many places. It confronts us in our culture in so many ways. Success. It is hard for a successful person to enter into the kingdom of God. Yea, it is impossible for one committed to success to enter the kingdom of God. It is hard for a person who is powerful to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yea, it is impossible for a person, a powerful person committed to the wielding of that power to enter into the kingdom of God. It is hard for a prominent person to enter the kingdom of God. Yea, it is impossible for one whose life is built on prominence to enter the kingdom of God. It is hard for one of great athletic ability to enter the kingdom of God. Yea, it is impossible for one whose identity and life is built upon their athleticism to enter the kingdom of God. It is hard for one who is beautiful, physically attractive, to enter the kingdom of God. Yea, it is impossible for one committed to beauty to enter the kingdom of God. It is hard for a famous person to enter the kingdom of God. Of God. Yea, it is impossible for one seeking fame to enter the kingdom of God. And yet, our culture values all of that. And we're like fish swimming in the ocean, surrounded in seawater, drinking it down constantly without understanding we're all wet. Beloved, these values can grip our soul. We can inadvertently train and school our own children in these values. 
lives and seal off the kingdom of God to them. This is hard stuff. These are shocking words. They particularly confront a a Western evangelical culture built upon the notion of easy believism. The idea that, that basically, of course God will save me. All I need to do is, is say I believe and then, and then make a, a kind of a superficial commitment to him and I'm in. I've got my fire insurance. Or this. Of course I can hold on to what's important to me in this life and still gain the next. I can have my cake and eat it too. And so much of how we approach it just feeds these lies. Jesus has got very, very, very shocking news for us. Not only can we not have the best of both worlds, but but there is nothing we can do to gain access to his kingdom. Nothing. Nothing. No human effort. No desire. No upbringing. No heritage. No religious devotion. They are all inadequate to grant access into Messiah's kingdom. In John's gospel, in chapter 1, And verse 11, John says it this way. He says, he that is Jesus came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. No heritage. No upbringing, no religious training, no human desire. Why? Why is this true? That same gospel in chapter 3, when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, he tells us why it's true. He says, you must be born again. You must be born again. Our problem is is that we've interpreted it as an imperative. It's an indicative. It's not something we do. God bless Nicodemus. He at least figured that out. How does a man enter into his mother's womb a second time to be born, right? He can't do it. Exactly. You can't. You can't be born again. It's not something you can do. It's something that must be done for you. It must be done for you. Shocking. It's a shocking concept. You mean there's nothing I can do? No, there's nothing you can do. 
What about my children? Is there anything I can do for them? No. There is nothing you can do. That's not fair. Really? Do we want to talk about fairness? Those who appear close are truly far away. Nobody can gain access. Third, only God can save. Only God can save. Verse 26, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Can you imagine if Jesus had ended his teaching halfway through verse 26? Hmm? What a desperate place without hope. But he didn't. But he didn't. Beloved, we can do nothing to earn God's favor. We can do nothing to incline God toward us, to look favorably upon us. Nothing. Nothing. But God saves. God saves sinners. Salvation is from the Lord. Amen. Amen. And he does it through his Lord, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent his son into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. He's on a rescue mission. Paul says it this way in Titus chapter 3. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Wow. That's good news. That is good news. That is news of the greatest import. It is a message that that needs to go to the world. That has no hope. None. They need to hear it. We need to hear it. We need to be reminded of it. Our children need to hear it. Not once, not twice. Regularly. Where do these... Shocking statements leave us. If those who appear close are truly far away, if it is impossible to gain Messiah's kingdom, but God saves, where does that leave us? Well, rightly appraised, it leaves us first with only one hope in the world. Only one hope 
in the world. Outside of Christ, there is no hope. The world is hopeless without Christ. Hopeless. Condemned without Christ. Justly under the sentence of condemnation. Everyone. Child and adult. Desperate. For a savior. Desperate for a savior. Poor in spirit. Meaning we have nothing to parade. No list of accomplishments, no list of achievements, nothing to to pull out. And show it to God. And say, that's what I got. Nothing. Finally, it leaves us following Christ. For he is our only hope. He is our only hope. In John 6, after Jesus chases the crowds away, who want to make him king, he says in verse 68 of John 6, excuse me, verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else would we go? That's where this leaves us. Where else would we go? How does all this relate to the uh, halfway covenant of Puritan New England? Hmm? How does it relate? Well, I think it relates this way. Concerned for the spiritual health of their grandchildren, seeing the, the pressures uh, that, were, that were coming upon them because of a, of a falling church attendance and participation, They sought to to make certain changes to facilitate people's attachment to the church. They compromised the gospel to make it more palatable to an unbelieving heart, is what they did. We are a people of God living here in community in a local church. And as such, we have a stewardship of the gospel. It has been entrusted to us. All of us. And that compels us, beloved. It it absolutely compels us to to recognize this reality that, that redemption is impossible unless God works. God alone saves. 
There is nothing we can or should do to make his job any easier. Nothing. Nothing. We are called to prayerfully speak the word of God to each other and to the lost world. Trust in the Lord of the harvest to do his good work. Pray and preach. That's what we're called to do. To pray and to preach. And God will save. God will save. According to his infinite mercy. There's no other place when you stop to think about it that you would rather be than firmly, squarely in the arms of a merciful God. Father, thank you for saving our wretched souls. Our Father, it is so easy for us to become confused on this fundamental reality. To get caught up in in all kinds of things. And to lose sight of this simple fact. That mankind is lost. That there is nothing that anyone can do to incline you to reach out to save them. There is no educational deficiency. There is a moral deficiency. We are the sons and daughters of Adam. Born in corruption. Without God. Deserving of condemnation. And yet, in your most profound mercy, you sent your own son into this world, the man Jesus Christ. You slew him in our place. You heaped upon his noble brow all of the guilt of all of the sin of all of your people for all of time. And you punished it there. And you raised him from the dead. On the third day, he broke the grip of death and sin. He lives forevermore. And he grants to those who believe on his name the right to be the children of God, it grants to us the very life of God in our own soul. He transforms us from the inside out. God, let us never lose track of that. It is our, it is our centering truth. It is, the, it is the penultimate reality.
And Father, may it motivate us to bring that message to a lost and dying world. For Jesus' sake, we pray.